Well, good morning again. Such a blessing to be able to gather with the saints of God. In recent weeks, I've heard more and more stories of different places in the world where brothers and sisters are suffering for their faith. And we realize that we're privileged if we can meet freely in a comfortable place and have friends with us and open the word of God. But there are many even at this moment that are languishing in a prison cell wishing they could be with us. And so throughout this week, we're going to be celebrating or at least marking next week the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. But throughout this week, let's be praying for our brothers and sisters that are facing difficulties, who don't have the blessings that we have. They have a rich faith, but they would sure like to have more freedom than they have. If you've not already, I encourage you to make sure your cell phones are turned off. That means more to some of you than to others. So let's make sure that we have it turned off so it's not going off as we're streaming live our message this morning. And to those of you joining us online, good morning. It's good to have you with us this morning. Thank you for taking the time to be wherever you might be as we study the Word of God together. And we invite you to turn already in your copy of God's Word to Matthew 18 as we prepare to study what God has for us in His Word. There's an old Spanish tale that tells of a father and son that were estranged. And they were estranged for many years. And the father sent off on a mission to find his son, and he searched for a long period of time, but to no avail. And finally, in a last-ditch effort to find him, he put an ad in a local Madrid newspaper, which read, Dear Peco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And on Saturday morning at noon, over 800 men named Peco showed up <laughs> looking for forgiveness from their fathers. You know, forgiveness is a wonderful and precious thing. And it's really one of those things that sets biblical Christianity apart from the religious systems and philosophies of men. You see, being forgiven of your sins and being sure of it is something that is unique because it is something that is uniquely applied by the Lord Jesus Christ. And though all religions have different sacrifices and rituals that they try to use to accomplish forgiveness, they cannot accomplish what the writer of Hebrews says is the cleansing of our consciences. And so forgiveness as given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ is a beautiful gift. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you're trusting in him alone to cleanse you, not just to forgive you, but to cleanse you from your sin, then you have experienced a deep forgiveness, a gracious forgiveness, a forgiveness that will have no limit and will know no end. But where the challenge comes in for us, for we who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that having been forgiven by faith, we're now called to practice that same forgiveness towards others to demonstrate what it is that we have received. And in the passage that we will look at this morning, Jesus will bring home the nature and necessity of forgiveness. For all of us, perhaps this is a good reminder of what it means to live out the gospel in our daily lives. For recent studies have come out show that as many as one in four 
self-proclaimed evangelicals say that there is someone in their lives that they will not forgive. If that's the case, then at a minimum, it means that a large number of self-proclaimed believers do not really understand what has happened to them in Christ. And thus, they need to think deeply about the nature of sin and the reality of forgiveness that is offered in Christ. For Jesus reminds us that those who are forgiven much love much. That's at the minimum of what that might mean. But at the worst, it might mean that a large number of self-confessing evangelicals may in fact not be believers at all. Because we, the fact remains in the passage that we will see this morning that the willingness to practice forgiveness towards others is the natural overflow of what we have received through such a great forgiveness from the Lord himself. So we do well as we have commemorated what the Lord did for us at this table this morning as we now sit under the authority of his word. May the Lord truly give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, wills to receive. The passage that we will look at this morning is Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And if you are able, I invite you again, once again, to stand in honor of God as we read his holy word and as we prepare to study it together. And the inspired and holy word of God says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. From your heart. This is the word of God given for our edification to practice the gospel in our daily lives. Let us receive it in its intended purpose. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, even as we gather this morning, so glad that we can gather freely and openly, so glad that we can even make plans for how we will spend our days. We're reminded that we still have great need of you as our teacher and our guide. 
And so in these moments, would you guide us and teach us in your word that we'd be responsive, that we would hear, that we would be humbled, that we would be transformed, that we would be changed, that you would be glorified. So be our teacher now in these moments, in Jesus' name. Well, as we've seen in recent weeks, Matthew 18 is an instruction manual, as it were, from Jesus on how we're to live out the New Covenant community. He's been giving instructions to the church that he is building, that he has purchased with his blood, how we are to live before the world, before God, and before one another. And we saw there was this emphasis on humility that we needed to have this childlike faith of complete dependence upon the Father in all that we do. For he is the one who gives us life and guidance. In a sobering passage last week, we looked at how to handle sin in the church, especially with the brother who is continuing in unrepentant sin, from which he refuses to turn and over which he refuses to repent. And we saw that rather than enabling someone to continue in such a pattern of unacceptable behavior to the Lord, that we need to demonstrate an act of tough love, which is discipline. For the desire is all who claim the name of Jesus Christ would walk in a way that is worthy of that name, moving on towards spiritual maturity. And we've already seen that that childlike faith that pleases God must never manifest itself as childish faith that continually bends in on itself and is self-seeking and destructive to the church community. And now as we begin a new section here in chapter 18, verse 21, Jesus is going to deal with the issue of personal forgiveness of one towards another. And you recall that last week as we looked at verses 15 to 20, we said that the whole attitude of forgiveness is that we're to have one of mercy and forgiveness towards other people, not an attitude of record-keeping, holding of grudges, anger or bitterness, unforgiveness. You know, in the passage that we read during the invocation that if, he, if the Lord were to keep a record of wrongs, well, in Christ he hasn't. In Christ he has thrown the ledger away and he's no longer going to hold our sins against us. But all too often we want to take out a ledger and we want to keep track of who's done what to us and when. But true love as defined in the Bible deals with sin in a way that seeks the best of the other person. That's what God did for us in Jesus Christ. Love deals with the sin, but does it in a way that upholds the dignity and honor of God and the dignity of the person created in the image of God who needs the redemption that God offers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all throughout chapter 18, beginning in verse 1 and continuing to the end, as they're still in Galilee and Jesus is preparing them for what is to come as they will move from Galilee and go on their way toward Jerusalem. He instructs the church how they are to live. But at this passage might deal with some questions then. Perhaps those early listeners, perhaps even us, will have questions that will arise in our minds. Well, at what point and how quickly do we move from one step to the other? Or how can we know that a person has really repented? And those are good questions. And those are questions that we should discuss with one another as we wrestle with the Word of God and as we learn from the whole counsel of God. You know, last week we celebrated the Reformation where we affirm that salvation is completely a work of God from beginning to end and in the solas that come out of the Reformation. The first one was sola scriptura, where our authority comes from Scripture alone and we sit under the authority of this Word that He gave us. 
66 books forming a library that give us all that we need to grow in godliness. But we also believe in tota scriptura. We believe in the fullness of scripture. All scripture is inspired of God and useful for teaching and instruction. And so we, we draw our instruction from all aspects of the word of God and we do it in community. And that's why we gather so that we can share with one another what we're learning, that we can grow in the study of the word of God together. For what we do when we gather, we can never do alone. So if we see that Matthew 15, 18 verses 15 to 20 deals with the sin of a brother who is ongoing and unrepentant, Jesus reminds us that there are several steps that can be taken before we get to that point, and the hope is that we would take those steps and get to that point. And we saw as a reminder, the first step was for a believer to go to another in private. And we saw last week that that is usually where it falls apart at that point. Where we gather allies, we gather proponents and opponents, and we start to build a case. And if we were just to do it correctly, quietly, firstly, many of the problems we deal with in the Christian life would be dealt with quickly and rightly. So as Jesus is continuing with this attitude of showing us how we need to apply forgiveness, he's also holding out the promise that as we do that, we would have a much fuller and more joyful personal and community life. If we deal with sin quickly and appropriately, we'd find that we have greater unity, that we have greater testimony to the community that we would not stop enabling sin and stop covering up sin and stop excusing sin, but instead we would deal with it the way the Bible does in gentleness and in reconciliation and not hold on to things so tightly in our hearts. Dr. Daniel Doriani, as he writes on this passage, he is a pastor in the St. Louis area, he said, people often say that a church is a hospital for sinners, and rightly so. But it's not to be a church that is a home for proud, unrepentant sinners. The church is a hospital for sinners, but for patients who at least want to become healthy. And that's what the gospel does. It takes root in our lives, and as it works in our lives, it overflows from our lives into the lives of those around us. So Jesus wants us to deal very clearly then with that aspect of our spiritual life and spiritual health. And so we begin with Peter coming to him and asking a very pertinent question that would be resonating in his mind, perhaps in your mind, as we've just heard what Jesus has to say. And that's our first major point. When is it enough? When is it enough? Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? We can applaud Peter that he really desires to apply this in his life in a way that's personal, that's relevant, that's applicational. He's trying to discern how he can behave and act in such a way that is wise, that is gentle, that is merciful. How many times when my brother sins against me, should I forgive him? Is there a limit? And Jesus is going to make clear that the overall idea is as long as he's repenting, you keep forgiving. But in any case, our disposition is to be one of ready to forgive, ready to release, ready to offer mercy. And even if the other party shows no mercy, no remorse, we're still called to be ready to offer forgiveness and to love our enemies, for is that not what God did for us? Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners. Romans 5, 10, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. 
In Exodus 34, the Lord promises to forgive the sins of those who repent and believe, but says, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so on this process, as we try to walk in wisdom as a community of faith of how to apply this forgiveness, how to apply discipline if needed, always with the intention of restoration, of forgiveness, of humility, of reconciliation, we need the wisdom of God. But Peter here is coming more on a personal level. What is my personal responsibility? Yes, we might need to leave room for church discipline, but what is my responsibility personally? What is your responsibility personally? And it's at that point that Jesus pushes us to a higher standard to offer mercy and forgiveness and grace, not having a spirit of retaliation or revenge, but to seek forgiveness and to let things go into the hands of God. And so in very poignant terms, Jesus is going to remind us that practicing forgiveness is a way of life for the one who has been purchased by the blood of Christ. In recent days, I've had many discussions with the elders over what we can do with these passages because there's been a stirring. We want to understand them more. And so there'll be some practical ideas that I will offer at the end of this message, but we're also going to revisit chapter 18 again in a summary form of just looking at how it fits overall with some practical steps for application on how we as a church body can continue to grow. But for now, let's keep going through the passage that is before us today. How often should I forgive my brother, Peter asked, up to seven times? And before we're quick to judge Peter for putting a limit, perhaps we should cut him a little grace. Because you see, according to the Jewish custom of that time, you forgave someone three times. And on the fourth time, it was done. So Peter, perhaps thinking, well, the way of Jesus is better than the way of the rabbis, seven times? He's at least being gracious in his mind. But Jesus is going to push us to a far higher level. He's not going to think on that human level of getting justice, getting even, getting retaliation. And so verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now some of you that have an older version of the Bible may be used to another translation here at this point, 70 times, seven times. Let me tell you why I prefer the ESV, and then come back and say in the end it doesn't matter. The first is that Jesus fulfills the scriptures. He's always the ultimate example of anything we see, ultimate example of good. Well, way back in Genesis 4, we have an example of evil, evil. A man named Lamech, who had been hurt by someone, and boasts to his wives what his revenge was, as he killed them simply because they hurt him. And he said, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Well, if seventy-sevenfold is a sign of the ultimate of just getting revenge and vengeance on the other side, then Jesus is going to go the ultimate extreme and say seventy-sevenfold. But an even stronger explanation I think is found in the language itself and what we know is the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament the expression in Hebrew is 77 and that's how it's translated in the Greek Septuagint and so I prefer 77 but don't let that be a trip up because whether it's 77 or 490 the meaning is the same it means in an unlimited manner it means put away the ledger it doesn't mean counting one, two, skip a few, 18, 30, 50, 75. It's doing it in an unlimited manner, this disposition of as God has forgiven us, so we are to forgive others. 
And maybe to eliminate the confusion, we should translate it in a way that we might understand it. It's a zillions or kajillions. I don't say to you seven times, but kajillions of times. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. God forgives our sins and he remembers them no more. He casts them into the sea of forgetfulness and puts up a sign that says no fishing. And if that's what he does for us, then he's calling us to do the same thing. Paul reminds us of a very similar thought in Ephesians 4 where he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you a homework assignment this week. I want you in the side of your notes, put Ephesians 4.32 and look at that and then write the ways or how God has forgiven you. If we're to forgive one another as God has forgiven us in Christ, how has God forgiven us? You'll probably come up with ideas like completely, without limits, mercifully, willingly, eternally. That's what we're called to do because now we're in Christ. The context refers to how do we deal with one another as, as brothers in Christ. This is radical stuff. There's nothing in our nature, nothing in our culture that prepares us for this. We are not naturally bent to forgive. We are not naturally bent to want to extend mercy and grace. This must be a supernatural work. And that's the point. God saves us in Christ, places his spirit in us, gives us a new way of living, a new orientation, a new frame of mind. We're being renewed in how we think about things. And so forgiveness always originates with God. He forgave us in Christ. Then we who are in Christ can forgive others. So Jesus wants to make this clear. When is it enough? And so as he's wont to do, he's going to bring up a parable where he explains the nature of the kingdom of heaven and will show us in a very graphic way the unlimited forgiveness that is possible through the unlimited power given to us by God as we're indwelt by his spirit. So first we're going to look at the response of mercy. The response of mercy. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who wished to settle accounts with his servants. There's a, there's a tone of judgment here, a king and servants and settling of accounts. And this fits with the context because here it's the concept of debts. And there's the idea that a debt is actually a type of sin against another person because sin always results in a debt against the one affected. It might be in time lost because of the effect of the sin against us. It might be in cost to our reputation. It might be in harm that was given to us physically, emotionally, or otherwise. But with every sin, there is a cost, and thus a debt that is incurred, and we have a debt against God in our sin. And the song that we just sang, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. So when this king began to settle the debts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now, everyone who works in a kingdom is a subject of the king. It's still that way today in places that have kings. So here we have someone who was a servant of the king because he worked for the king, obviously had a position of great power and influence because somehow he had mismanaged 10,000 talents. It's an amount that's almost unthinkable and almost incalculable. But he's a debtor, and the servant was required to repay it. And since he could not pay, 
his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So if you worked for someone, you received wages, you, you could be in that day, if you a subject of a king, you could be sold to another master to bring in more revenue if you were no longer of profitability to the king. And in this case, he's just trying to cut his losses, so he's going to sell the servants, he's going to sell his family, at least get something back, because it's a debt that he can't possibly repay. The other side of it would be debtor's prison, where he's thrown in prison, and his family has to work hard to get him out. But it's a difficult, impossible even, situation that he is in front of. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He knows the severity and meaning of his situation. He knows the penalty that's before him. His whole family would be sold into slavery. They would be separated. His life would be ruined. This is a desperate man. He stands before a debt he could never repay. Now, it's not a question of how he got into debt. It's just the issue of the debt itself. How much did he owe? We're not going to try to calculate in today's dollars how much he would owe. I don't think that's the point of what Jesus is saying. But we are going to do it in a way to give you a clear picture of what Jesus is saying. You see, we're told that the man owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, you recall in ancient days that they used to use scales to weigh out money or gold or silver. You would have a weight on one side, and you would start to put grams of gold or silver or platinum or whatever on the other, and you weigh it out. Well, the talent was the heaviest weight used in the Hebrew money system. Talent weighed about 75 pounds. So if you can imagine 75-pound pile of gold. But not only was the talent the heaviest weight used in the Hebrew money system, 10,000 was the highest number available in the Greek numeric system at the time. Remember we just sang the song when we've been there 10,000 years? Really, it means billions. When we've been there billions of years, bright, shining light, but it doesn't rhyme, right? So we're not used to it that way. But what is Jesus doing here? Jesus knows the culture. He uses the heaviest weight known in the Hebrew system, and the biggest number known in the Greek system to make the point. Now let's just do the math. One talent was worth 6,000 denarii. That's the plural for denarius. Denarius was the daily wage of a day laborer. He would work all day and get a denarius. One talent equals 6,000 denarii. You're already starting to see the problem. An average work day in those days was about 300 year, uh, days. So you would earn 300 denarii a year. So now you take the 10,000 uh, uh, 10, talents by the 6,000 denarii and you end up with 60 million denarii. Starting to feel a little uncomfortable at this point. You divide that by 300 denarii a year, and it's the complete wages of a day worker for 200,000 years. Now, we live in a can-do, pick-yourselves-up-by-your-bootstraps culture, and I'm telling you, you can't get there from here. 200,000 years of wages just to pay off the debt. He's a desperate man. He falls on his knees, implores his master 
for mercy. I find it humorous that he says, I will repay you everything. There are two people in that scenario that know that's not going to happen. The one who owes and the one who is to receive. But the word that is translated as imploring or out of pity, I'm sorry, let me go to the next verse. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him. Now, imploring meant this was something he did again and again and again and again. Please, please, I promise, I'll repay you everything. Please, have mercy on me. You, could, you can imagine, this man is at the end of his wits with a debt he could never repay. And the master re responds with an act of mercy. The verb for out of pity means to be deeply moved from the, in, the inward parts. And he forgave his debt. You see, at the root of forgiveness is mercy, which led to the cancellation of the debt that he owed. At the root of our forgiveness before the Lord Jesus Christ is God's mercy towards us. And in his mercy, he canceled the debt that we owed him because of our sin. So this master did the unthinkable. He forgave this debt. He showed him grace. He released him. He didn't even put him into prison, which he could have done, where he would have been punished. And so we have this response of mercy. 200,000 years of wages forgiven because of mercy. And then we see the response of vengeance. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. One might ask ourselves the question, how could one who had received so much mercy respond to another who owed him so little? We would hope that mercy would have an influence, but apparently it did not. We're told he went out to find a fellow servant, one who would have been in a similar station, a similar level, a similar place. And there's intention in his actions. The second man owed him money. How much? A hundred dinars or denarii. The Jordanians say dinars. That's why I keep getting tripped up. A hundred denarii. How much do you earn a day? One denarius. How many days wages? One hundred. So we compare four months wages to 200,000 years. He literally was owed one six hundred thousandth of what he owed his master. It was literally a difference between zillions and peanuts. So seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So the same man, the recipient of so much mercy, who had been given so much, went out and found one who owed him a pittance and began to choke him and beat him and threatened him with prison. You can almost see the blood shooting out of his eyes. Pay me what you owe. So the same scene plays itself out. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. We have the same reaction, falling to the knees, pleading for mercy, humility. I promise to repay the same words that are used, that he used with his master. But when they came out of the mouth of another, they fell upon his deaf ears. He refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. In response to the pleas for mercy, 
and a promise to repay the very same ones that he had given. He showed no mercy and threw the man into debtor's prison. You're going to stay there until you pay. Pay me what you owe. Do you know who you're dealing with? And those that are looking on, of course, are going to be shocked. Now, granted, this is a parable, okay? But we can see it in our minds. The situation would be shocking to any eyewitness. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Such a thing should not happen. They know enough to understand that. So they take him to the king, or take it to the king and tell him all that had taken place. It's not what would, we would expect. Seeing the first part of the story, this is not what we would expect to happen. When the word reaches the ears of the master, he takes matters into his own hands, and then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. At this point, we should almost tremble a little bit when we see the words, the master summoned him. Because one day we'll be summoned by the master for our own judgment. And he does not mince words. He says, you wicked servant. It can be translated as evil, but it can also be translated as scoundrel, and that fits with the poetry of this story. You scoundrel, how dare you? I forgave you all that debt. And in the original language, all is right at the beginning of the sentence, so the emphasis is there. All the debt that I forgave you? But when it came to your turn, you showed no mercy. And so the uh, obvious question is, then, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, the gospel grips our hearts and changes us. And the Holy Spirit begins to produce fruit in our lives as we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have received abundant grace, then we should be among the first to show it to others. Jesus already said as he was establishing his way of living back in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 7. He said, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You had accepted mercy, but then you wouldn't show it to others. And at this point, we're tempted to say, well, you know, the one that was, he owed 100 denarii. He didn't deserve forgiveness or mercy. He was a debtor. But did the first one deserve mercy? So the master canceled his forgiveness to the one who showed no sign of being forgiveness because he failed to offer forgiveness to others. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers and should he pay all of his debt. He was thrown into jail. Now at this point, I am going to disagree with the ESV because it renders jailers here, which is better rendered as torturers. Because in debtor's prison, there was punishment for the debts that you accumulated. So this first servant finds himself in the position that he wanted to put the second servant in because he wouldn't respond with the mercy that he and himself received. What Jesus is doing here is he's, he's calling us to a heart check. He's calling us to a test. Do you really know me more importantly do I really know you have you experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God that will show itself 
in mercy and forgiveness to others. And so that brings us then to our next point, which is what's in your heart. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not, for not forgive your brother from your heart. Just look at the different words. The Father, everyone, forgives, brother, heart. There's action verbs here. There's a foreboding sign of, a, of an analysis, of an evaluation, of sin and confrontation, of a call to repentance, of an offer of forgiveness, of a debt and a debtor. And it comes to mind when we pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our, some versions say trespasses, which is those who violated the law against us. Forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Who are the main players in this story? Who are the, who's represented by whom? Well, I think we would all agree that the main player, the master, represents God. As I've already said in looking at Psalm 130, how God dealt with our sins. And notice it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That awe may come over, to, over us. That such a God would forgive such a one as I. So when we hear that we're forgiven by God in Christ, we hear the call then to go out and have mercy on others. Because the next question is, who represents us in this story? The ungrateful servant. How often are we slow to offer forgiveness to others? How often are we slow to show mercy? How often do are we longing to get our own come up and our own, our own revenge? God has forgiven us beyond any possible human calculation, yet often we hold things against one another, forgetting what has happened to us. There's a real heart test here. It's intended to be a real heart test. Jesus doesn't play games with sin. He says, deal with it. If I have shown you mercy, then show mercy. As Dr. David Platt reminds us, the Bible is not saying that it's easy to forgive. It is not saying that it's natural to forgive. It's saying that it is Christian to forgive. And as I've wrestled in my own heart with these ideas over the years, I had to come to the realization that there is nothing that has been done to me that even remotely compares to what I have done to God. Because I was a blasphemer before my conversion. I was an evil man before my conversion, as we all were. I was dead in my trespasses before my conversion. There's nothing that has been done to me that even compares to what I did to God. And then he showed me mercy. He showed me grace. He led me to the cross. He forgave me. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The inverse is true as well. Blessed are those who show mercy, for they shall receive, they shall show mercy. Those who receive shall show it. The half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote in his little epistle, For judgment is without mercy the one who has shown the mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So we check our hearts. Are we willing to forgive? And if we're not willing to forgive, if we're in that category of one in four that have someone that we are not willing to forgive, is it true that we've been touched by the mercy of God ourselves? That might be then the place to start is to ha have God help us to understand how deeply sinful we truly are.
and how much we need a holy God who is merciful. We're so deeply impacted by sin that we're blinded to it. And we need to have his eyes to help us to see how much we need a Savior. Because those who have been touched by the grace of God will show it to others and will want to show it to others. It was the kindness of God that led us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. Perhaps it will be the kindness that we show to others that will lead them to further and greater forgiveness. So lastly and briefly, just to touch on the subject this week, and we'll deal with it in more detail next week, what is forgiveness? If we, if we understand that we're called to practice it, if we understand that it's something that we're to do, well, what is it? What are we doing? What, what is God asking us to do? And so we're going to touch on it a little bit this week, and as I said, next week we're going to come back and do a, a, a summary of the entire chapter to see how these different themes fit together to help us understand. The first one is forgiveness is not forgetting. We often say that, but it's not completely true. Now, by his mercy over time, we may forget the intensity of things that have happened to us, but we can't always forget. Sometimes the loss is great and obvious. Forgiveness is not reconciliation, though we hope that's what will be the case. Reconciliation, we hope, is the outflow of forgiveness. But they're two different things. We need to have the disposition to be ready to forgive, but we can't control what the behavior of the other party will be or the attitude of the other party will be. Forgiveness is not an admission that the other person was right, nor that the matter is really not that big of a deal. If they were right and it wasn't a big deal, there's no need for forgiveness. But it's because there has been sin, there has been offense, there has been harm, then there needs to be forgiveness. So if those are some things that forgiveness is not, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is an act of mercy toward the one who has sinned against us. It's an act of mercy. It's a response, not of revenge, not of retaliation, not of getting even, not of putting them in their place. It's an act of mercy. We offended God with our sins, and he acted with mercy in sending Christ. And when we forgive others, we extend that mercy toward someone who doesn't deserve it, just like we didn't deserve it. Second, forgiveness is canceling the debt that someone owes us. If they've sinned against us, there's a debt. Maybe they cost us, as I've said, in lost time, in lost reputation, in lost property, something else. There's a debt that is there. Forgiveness is canceling the debt and not holding it over their head anymore. Forgiveness is abandoning my rights to get even or to get justice on my terms. Forgiveness is letting go and placing the matter in God's hands and trusting him to do what is right for his glory and his timing. It's letting go of the burden. As we forgive others, we relief, relieve or release ourselves from prisons of anger, bitterness which can lead itself to all kind of things and we'll look at that more next week what are some of the the effects of an unforgiving spirit so forgiveness practice with that open hand of mercy that open hand of grace that open hand of understanding that open hand of saying look let's let's come together dials down the comparison game 
puts away the ledger. Well, you did this, and you did that, and you did the other thing, and I did this, and I did that, and I, it puts it aside. It throws out the need to get revenge. Because Jesus says, or the Lord says, do not seek revenge, it is mine to repay, but we're to offer forgiveness, extend forgiveness. Forgiveness shows that we are truly Christians, that we've been touched by the mercy of God, and we want to show it and shine it to others. We'll look at next week some of the effects of an unforgiving spirit, and one of them is it will block the work of the Spirit in our lives. It'll block our understanding of the Word of God. But forgiveness frees us to hear from the Lord. It reminds us that it's far better to focus on what Christ has done for you and less than what others have done to you. If we think of the wonderful sacrifice of Christ, we'll want to apply that to others because we'll want them to have what we have. They'll want them to join us in the great throngs of worshiping the Lord. We'll want them to join us as the family of the redeemed. We'll want them to join us as we march into heaven and sing his praise forever because forgiveness is manifested in wanting what is best for the other person, which is peace with God. So as I said, Matthew 18 has been so full of challenging subjects that we're going to spend some time walking through it next week and taking a deeper look even at the whole idea of forgiveness. So here's how you can prepare. I gave you one piece of homework, study Ephesians 4.32. A second one is I want you just to read through Matthew 18 several times this week. Just read it from verse 1 to the end. Just keep reading it. Get the overall flow. Feel the flow. And as you do that, ask the Lord to prepare your heart and sharpen your mind. We're called to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Actively engage in the word and say, what would the Lord want to teach me as we prepare to study this passage again together? And then begin to think of what practicing forgiveness as a way of life would look like. Spoiler alert. Imagine having peace in your heart while you're trying to sleep. As we come back next week and as we look at Matthew 18, it'll be in summary form. We won't take our time to go verse by verse. We'll go section by section. But what Jesus is teaching the church is so important that we want to take another week to walk through it together and continue to learn. But until that time, let's pray. Father, we go back to Psalm 30, which we read earlier in the... In the service, if you, O Lord, could keep record of sins, who could stand? Father, forgive us for those times when we think we could. Forgive us for those times, Father, when we have not acted towards others as you have acted towards us. Forgive us, Father, for not taking short accounts over our hearts and minds and allowing things to take seed and root in our hearts that embitter us. Father, the gospel is great, and Jesus is a great Savior, and we want to have the fullness of all that he has for us. So would you continue to teach us and help us to have an attitude that is honoring to you, honoring to each other, upholds the truth and dignity of the gospel. So be teaching us, Father. We need you. We cry out to you. We plead for your interaction. Guide us this week, Father. And grow us this week for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.